Um, so I'll read the passage, Exodus 19 and Exodus 24, if you want to follow along in your bulletin. It says this, After breaking camp at Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and set up camp there at the base of Mount Sinai. Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth, for all the earth belongs to me. And you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. So Moses returned from the mountain and called together the elders of the people and told them everything the Lord had commanded him. And all the people responded together, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. So Moses brought the people's answer back to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will come to you in a thick cloud, Moses, so the people themselves can hear me when I speak with you. Then they will always trust you. And Exodus 24, skipping ahead. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it aloud to the people. And again, they all responded, we'll do everything the Lord's commanded, we'll obey. Then Moses took the blood from the basins and splattered it over the people, declaring, look, this blood confirms the covenant the Lord's made with you in giving you these instructions. Then Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel climbed up the mountain. There they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there seemed to be a surface of brilliant blue lapis lazuli, as clear as the sky itself. And though these nobles of Israel gazed upon God, he did not destroy them. In fact, they ate a covenant meal, eating and drinking in his presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain, stay there. I'll give you the tablets of stone in which I've inscribed the instructions and the commands, so you may teach the people. So Moses and his assistant Joshua set out, and Moses climbed up the mountain to God. Moses told the elders, Stay here and wait for us until we come back. Aaron and her are here with you. If anyone has a dispute while I'm gone, consult with them. Then Moses climbed up the mountain, and the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled down on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from inside the cloud. To the Israelites at the foot of the mountain, the glory of the Lord appeared at the summit like a consuming fire. Then Moses disappeared into the cloud as he climbed higher up the mountain. He remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So as Kate said, I'm John Baber, um, RUF campus minister here at UNC Charlotte. If you're familiar at all with RUF, it's a college, it stands for Reformed University Fellowship. It's a college ministry of the denomination that Hope belongs to, so we're partners in ministry. Um, and as Kate mentioned, I was an intern here at Hope from 2017 to 19, something like that. So it's great to be with you all this morning. Um, my wife, Marianne, our two-year-old Jackie is now in the children's area, hopefully surviving. Um, or he's fine, I'm sure. Are the, are the volunteers surviving? We don't know. Um, so I haven't been physically with you all <clears throat> here through this series on Exodus, but funny enough, in our RUF this semester, we've been going through the book of Exodus, so it worked out. So I've been uh, here with you in spirit as we've been going through Exodus. And if you follow the story this far, I haven't been here, but I imagine you've seen some, some key things going on. You've seen God free his people, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt and bring his justice against Egypt. You've seen the Israelites continue to complain and moan about this and that and not trusting God and wishing they were back in Egypt. And we've seen God over and over and he'll keep doing it showing up for his people, Israel, in their weakness and their need. 
And he's done this to push them further into seeing their need of him. And so now, Exodus 19, our passage, our passage today, the Israelites, they're freed, right? They're out of Egypt. They're out of slavery and bondage. They're wandering in the desert. But they're a group of people without much of an identity, if you can imagine. Like, think about it like this. This is a people group that spent 400 years in slavery. The, the people who started out that are probably dead and gone by now. So everyone who's still in Israel, like, doesn't even remember life before slavery, if that makes sense. They've likely forgotten more about their group identity. What makes them a people? What makes Israelites Israelites? They've forgotten more than they can remember. They don't have a group identity. Now, as I mentioned, uh, we have a two-year-old at home, Jackie. He, uh, and I, I didn't see the movie last year, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. I heard it was great. I think I'd like it. Um, one best picture last year. But I did see at least one movie last year that would be my best picture. Um, and that would be Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. Um, again, I have a two-year-old, also. It was good. Um, like, seriously, it has a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes. A spinoff of Shrek, and it's like a sequel to a spinoff from Shrek. Um, <clears throat> so we heard great things, and our son Jackie loves animals. We were desperately waiting on this movie to come out to like rent for, first it was like 20 bucks, like we're not paying that, and now it's like $7, something like that. And we rented it, and you could get it for 48 hours, and then Jackie had us watch it three times in 48 hours. Um, and again, this movie is way better than it has any right to me. It's right to be, it's so good. Um, and not to spoil it for you, because you all should watch it. Um, <clears throat> but Puss in Boots, if you don't know, is this arrogant hero. He is a cat that wears boots. Um, an arrogant hero who dies at the very beginning of the movie. So, kind of a spoiler, but it's like the first scene. He dies. It's CGI. It's animated. So, of course, this cat has nine lives. But the issue is, which sets up the plot for the movie, is that Puss in Boots realizes he's on his last life. And when he realizes that, he has a sudden actual fear of death. Like, if I die again, that's it. I'm gone. So he goes, he decides he wants to just run and hide. He's like, I can't live this life of being a noble hero anymore. I can't do danger. I've got to just go hide. He buries his boots and his hat. um, And he goes to live with this, like, caricature of, I don't want to shame or judgment, this caricature of, like, crazy cat lady is what it's supposed to be. This woman who owns, like, hundreds of cats and lives off in the woods. So he goes to live there. There's another cat. And there's, as there is in movies, there's a montage of him adjusting to his new life. He shows up, and he's like, doesn't know what a litter box is. Um, you see, she like brings out this massive bag of food in the morning and this trough, and all the cats line up to eat, and he's just like weirded out by it. Um, but over time in the montage, uh, Puss in Boots becomes more and more like the other kind of mindless cats, waiting on the food in the morning, in line at the litter box, sleeping all day. Uh, he wears, he, he grows his beard, like a cat beard, I don't know. I don't think that's a real thing, but um, he takes on the name Pickles instead of boot, Puss in Boots. And it's supposed to be this picture of Puss in Boots leaving his past behind and becoming so adjusted to the monotony of this new life that he doesn't resemble who he used to be by the end of it, right? He won't even call himself Puss in Boots anymore. He's just another lap cat. As much as I want to bring that up to plug the movie, because it's great, uh, I actually kind of see that a little bit in our passage. It it feels on the nose for what we're seeing for the Israelites as they wander in the wilderness. Um, For 400 years, they were in slavery. 
Um, and again, it might have been on my mind just because I watched it three times in 48 hours, and we've since, now we own it, and we've watched it more since then. Um, and I don't want to make light, clearly, of the suffering that the Israelites face. It's very different from Puss in Boots. Um, but I do think they kind of like that montage of Puss in Boots kind of forgetting his old identity. This was them in slavery in Egypt, losing who they were, not remembering who they are anymore, um, having a group identity in that they were suffering in slavery together, but maybe not much else. In other words, they were God's people, but they'd lost their why and their how that they were God's people. Because it had been stomped out of them from 400 years of slavery. And so now we're at the point in the story, again, Exodus 19, where they are freed from slavery, um, and they might not have much of an identity, they're figuring out what their purpose is, but at least they're free. But the first time in centuries, in 400 years, that they can stop, breathe, rest, and reflect, who are we? What makes an Israelite an Israelite? And this is where God comes in. Throughout most of the rest of Exodus, uh, we're going to see God <clears throat> answering this question for Israel of who are we? He's going to be guiding them and instructing them on what it means to be an Israelite, what it means to follow God and his ways. Next week, spoiler, but you'll cover the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, which is one of the seminal moments of God laying out for his people. Like, here's ten things that you're to follow. Here's ten distinct things to make you different from other groups of people. But before we get there, before God gives his people the law, he gives them the why of the law. It's like if I was a history professor, if I wasn't a pastor at UNCC, but I was a history professor teaching History 101, and you showed up to class, and it was the first day. If you went to college, you know, syllabus day. Um, it's the first day, and you show up, and the first five minutes, I'm like, here's 20 dates. Here's 30 key figures in history. Here's things you need to know by next week. All right, see ya. Like, God doesn't do that. It's more... Um, you show up to syllabus day, the first day of class, and if you're a good professor, you kind of lay out where the semester's going, right? You're like, here's what it's going to look like. Here's the trajectory we're on. You might hopefully talk about the why of history. Like, why are we studying history? Why are we going to talk about this for a whole semester? Why is this important? And this is what God's doing for the people in Exodus 19 before he gives them his law. So he says this. <clears throat> These are some of the key verses, starting in verse 3, Exodus 19:3. For the why of the law, he says, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you'll obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth, for all the earth belongs to me. And you'll be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. Now, I think, like, if you were reading this at home or somewhere else, you were just reading through the book of Exodus, you'd get to 19, you'd get to this. And if you're like me, your eyes might kind of, like, gloss over it, glaze over it, especially if you know the Ten Commandments are coming up. You're like, let's get to the good stuff. Like, what is this kind of, like, an intro thing? Ah, it's fine. It's like uh, Paul in the New Testament, if you know Paul's letters, he starts a lot of them, like, greetings to so-and-so-and-so-and-so. Uh, with great thanks that I, blah, 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 blah. And you're kind of like, you might read that and you're like, oh, let's just skip to like chapter two. Let's get to the meat. Let's skip the appetizer. But there's so much here in this intro to the Ten Commandments. And so we're going to break it down a little bit this morning. God's saying to Israel, 
He's saying, hey, Israel, hey, group of people that are wandering the desert without much of a sense of identity and purpose. You're wondering who you are. Here's your identity and purpose. Hey, remember how I rescued you? How I lifted you out of your suffering, like on eagle's wings? Well, now that I've rescued you, now that I've acted first, listen to me, keep my promises and my commands. And then, he says, over time, you'll become two or three things, depending on how you break it down. You'll become my own special treasure and a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And I'm not a math person, that's why I'm a pastor, but... This is like the great conditional statement, if I remember right what conditional statements are. The great conditional statement of the Bible, of the Christian life, that we mess up time and time again. And that God's giving us the answer to right here. Pastor Les Newsom calls it the heartbeat of the Christian life. God's saying, if I rescued you, which I did, then you should obey me. And if you obey me, then X, Y, and Z will happen, Right? And we get this confused so often. We get it mixed up. I'll go to sleep at night. I'll be like, God loved me. He rescued me. Uh, so now I should listen to him. I should care about his word. And then I go to sleep, and I wake up the next morning, and I'm like, all right, today I've got to obey God. I've got to have a killer quiet time. And I've got to pray the right prayer for the right amount of time. And I've got to crush this Christian stuff so that he'll rescue me, right? I get it mixed up. But what God's saying is this. He's saying, I already love you. If I didn't, I wouldn't have saved you. I love you, and I've acted on that love. Now, if you love me too, check yes or no, but if you love me too, you're going to reciprocate that love. Now it's your turn to show it. And then, and this is one of the beautiful things about God in Scripture, instead of him leaving Israel in this place, um, where he's just saying, all right, where you just go, okay, well, I guess I've just got to do what you say, God. <laughs> he offers us, again, the trajectory behind it. He offers us why it'll be good. Which he didn't have to. Again, the God of the universe created, who created everything, just rescued Israel from 400 years of slavery. If he wanted to say, okay, look what I've done at my power, um, so now it's my turn to tell you what to do and you just have to obey me and that's it, right? He could have just said that. Like, here's the list of rules and bye. That would be within his right. That's not how God operates. He says, I love you, I rescued you, so now will you reciprocate that love and do as I say? And, he, and then he says, here's why. He gives us a why. He gives us where we're going. He says, because I want you to be my treasured possession. And I want you to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. So let's briefly talk about those three things. The, the treasured possession, a holy nation, and a kingdom of priests. So God says, if you obey my commands, you'll become a treasured possession. My treasured possession, he says. And that might be somewhat self-explanatory, maybe, what that means. You might have some ideas. Uh, but I want to stop and consider what the God of the universe is offering Israel here and us here. He could have just said, if you do these things, then you'll be a treasure. You'll be really great and valuable. It'll be really good for you. But that's not what he says. God says, you'll be my treasured possession. This isn't the language of a God telling people how they can be generically great or valuable. It's, um, it's the language of him offering the people and offering us an invitation to be in an intimate, personal relationship with him. 
He's saying, I've rescued you, but now I want to know you more. And I want you to know me more. He's not an impersonal God who's only concerned with winning as many generic souls to him as if it's like a sport he's trying to win. He's a God who wants to truly know us and for us to know him. And that's the first why of his commandments and his law. They allow us as individuals to know God more deeply and for him to know us more intimately. Again, it's an invitation for us. But then he says we become a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. It's not quite as self-explanatory, especially today. That sounds a little weird compared to treasure possession. And so what's the first thing you think of when you think of God saying Israel will be a holy nation? The word holy there. I think a lot of us jump to things like, oh, holy means some kind of spiritual or moral purity. So God saying keeping his commandments looks like becoming a pure people that are like better than others because we're just pure and holy. We're more righteous than others. And that's not really what it means. It means more of like the separate, distinct thing. And even with that, and I might, I don't mean to like, I don't want to ruffle feathers. I don't want to, I don't want to say anything that gets anyone in trouble or me in trouble, but here we go. Um, when I think of the word separate, God's calling to be a separate people. I think a lot of people can jump to a lot of different places about what that means. Like, oh, God's telling Israel to be a holy nation. So therefore, he's telling them, he's telling us, we need to like, we have to pull out of the school system and get into homeschooling. Or, oh, yeah, and I'm not saying homeschooling's bad. I'm not. <laughs> but some people might take that as like, this is what he's telling us we have to do. Or, okay, yeah, he wants us to be holy, so, yeah, I got to get through this uh, reading program, this reading in a year plan in my Bible. That'll make me holy if I want to be holy enough for God. Or, yeah, you're right, you're right, God. I've had concerns. Some people aren't being holy enough. They're watching this movie or consuming that content. Yeah, we need to, that's right, you need to tell them, God. They need to be holy. But if becoming God's personal, special treasure is something that can be attained by entering into a personal relationship with him, then I argue that what God's calling for here as a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, is he's calling Israel and he's calling us into being a distinct people group that looks different than other people, and because you'll see, because of his love. And I'm borrowing some of this from a former pastor in New York, Tim Keller here, uh, who notes, he notes some distinctives that he sees in the law for ways that God is calling Israel to be holy and distinct. So here's some of the things he sees for how Israel is to be holy, um, a holy nation. And God's commands and laws to Israel, this is the first recorded place that we know of in human history. This is the first place where adultery wasn't only a sin when a woman commits it, like it was in every other society. But in Israel, adultery is a sin whether you're a man or a woman. This is the first culture in which daughters could inherit their family's wealth alongside sons, not just the males like in every other nation. God tells the people to give away 10% of their income every year, and then on the third year, they're called to give even more. And when you prorate it all together, it comes out to something like a little over 20%, 23% of your wealth every year that is given away. Does that feel holy? Does it feel like, that feels a little too holy for me sometimes, like too distinct too radical. And, and God tells the people with their giving, their money away. In Deuteronomy 15, um, he basically says, if you follow all these laws and commandments, uh, there will be no poor people among you. This is what a holy nation looks like. And we see Jesus in the New Testament. How does he spend his time? He heals the sick. He feeds the hungry. He notices those who are hurting, and he shows compassion. 
Being a distinct, different, holy nation means that God is telling Israel, hey, you know how everywhere else there's an entire half of the population that has like no rights at all and women? That we're going to do something a little different here. You know how um, there's a bunch of poor people in the world? We're not going to have that here. You know how people get sick and get placed on the fringes of society, outcast because no one wants to interact with them and get sick? We're not going to do that. We're going to move toward people here. And here's the kicker of the idea of a holy nation. I can do this in my personal life all I want. And that's great. I can uh, move toward the hurting, and I can proactively work to lift people up that are down. But see that God's not calling people into a personal holiness alone. We can miss this so much in our Western modern culture today. Even in the church today, we want to personalize everything part of everything, right? We want everything to be something I can achieve on my own. I can affirm or not on my own. It's all my personal decision. Everything's catered to me in an individual way, personal choice, but God's giving Israel instructions on how to be a holy nation. And if the church today, the Christian church today, if it's to, we're to be the extension of Old Testament Israel, right? We are the gathering of God's people today, like Israel was, and if we are God's people, then he's not just speaking to me personally here. He's not just speaking to you personally here. No, he's calling us into something bigger than ourselves. When God gets to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, if you know the story, he doesn't just write it down on like a piece of paper and like slide it into Moses' pocket. And it's like, yeah, tell some people about this, right? He puts it on these tablets for all the people to see so that everyone can be a part of it. He when he lays out for Israel what the tabernacle, the place of worship, is supposed to be, it's supposed to be in the center of their society. It's supposed to be something where everyone can see it and be a part of it. See, as much as our personalized individual world might want you to think that your religion, your beliefs, should only be limited to what you personally believe in your heart, God's calling us into something that involves being grouped together in some kind of tangible community. So this is something to ask yourself. It's not just, do I care about others? Or do I just focus on myself? It's not just, how am I personally caring for other people? Those are great things to ask. Those are great things to do. But it's this. Is the Christian community that I belong to treating people any different? And why or why not? For those of you that call yourselves Christian in the room, and I know everyone here might be there, but if you do call yourself Christian in the room, God isn't saying... Hope Community Church should be a place where there's a few good people doing some good stuff, right? He's saying this should be a place that feels wholly different when you walk in the room. Like people should be able to feel when they walk through this doorway from all the people out there in the world, they should feel this community's different. And this takes us to the last thing, a kingdom of priests, God says. God tells Israel they'll become a kingdom of priests, so what did a priest do in the Old Testament? Uh, they were mediators. Moses functioned like a priest for Israel. Uh, he would, as you see in the text, he goes up the mountain, talks to God. God tells him what to tell the people. He comes back down. He tells the people. Uh, Moses was a priest. He was a go-between God and Israel, a mediator. And God is saying this. He's saying if you enter into his love, and you seek to hear what he has to say, you'll become like a kingdom of priests. Mediating being the go-between of who? Of God and the world. 
See, again, God uses the word kingdom. We're not just a smattering of just random uh, individual priests scattered throughout. We're supposed to be a collective, community-oriented language that he's using here. And if Israel, and if the church today is to be a kingdom of priests, that means that we're to collectively be the go-between for God and the world. Where we hear this message of love that God offers in the scripture, and that we turn around and we want others to know it too. This is Jesus saying in the New Testament, saying you are the salt of the earth, the light of the world, a city on a hill. And I tell our students this in RUF. We meet on Thursday nights for our large group worship in the student union. I tell them that. And it's not, we don't do it perfectly. We don't expect perfection. Uh, But I'm like, we should hope. We meet in the student union, room 261. We should hope when a student who's never been here walks in from the main lobby of the student union, that, like, it feels different in here, right? When someone walks in RUF, they should feel that we do things differently, that we're a group that's actually committed to loving others and showing compassion. When everything around us can often tell us to not and only kind of care for ourselves and things we care about. And part of the reason that we're to do that is that God says we're to be a kingdom of priests. So someone will walk in the room or someone will walk into here at Hope Community Church on a Sunday morning and say, whoa, this group of people is different. <clears throat> I wonder if it's something to do with the God they're worshiping and what that says about him. And let's say, let's say you hear all this and you internalize it all in like a personal way. You love others like almost as well as Jesus did. Like you're crushing it. You're seeking justice for the hurting the way God does when he freed Israel. Um, you do all of that, and you have, and I joke with our students about the dream Christian scenario, especially for them on a campus. Like, the dream scenario for them is, I just love people well in my personal life, and then a classmate walks up to me, and is like, you're so nice. Can you tell me about Jesus? <laughs> and maybe that happens from time to time, but that's pretty rare, I imagine. And look, that's a great idea, but why is it probably never going to happen? Because the actual conclusion, if someone just sees your personal holiness, your personal goodness, loving others, caring for those around you, if someone sees you doing that personally, they might see that and go, whoa, that person is different. They're really great. Is it because they're Christian? And unfortunately, they might go, well, wait, I've interacted with Christians, and that wasn't my experience there. Or maybe I've read headlines or seen things in the news that evangelicals of the church or whatever is saying or doing this or that. So, no, I don't think it's because they're Christian. They must just be great on their own. And that's that, right? But if we're a holy nation, if we're a kingdom of priests, and someone sees an entire group of people that are acting this way, right? Then someone on the outside is going to have no choice but to say, wait, 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 there's no chance all of these people just happen to be really great and really kind, and loving others, and giving away to help others. There's no way they just all happen to randomly show up in the same room. There has to be something different about this room and these people. And I wonder if it's the Jesus they talk about. Like if you imagine in the Old Testament, if someone from another nation came across an Israelite, just wandering around, and the Israelite was like, yeah, I give away over 20% of my wealth to help eliminate poverty. You know, that outsider would be like, great, sweet. That's fantastic. You're a great person. But if that person walks into a whole nation that's doing that, they would be stopped in their tracks, right? They'd be like, how do I, how do I get in on this? How do we become a part of this? 
Let me bring us home here. God's about to lay out his law again next week, uh, Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. But first he's telling the people why. And what does he say? He says, because I rescued you on eagles' wings, because I loved you first and I saved you. So now I want you to follow me. And part of what that looks like is to obey these commandments I give you. Why? Because I want you to engage with me. I want you to know me and enter into a personal, intimate relationship with me. I want to know you, be near to you, and I want you to know me and my ways and the things I value. And God's saying, and if you do those things, then you'll become a holy, distinct nation, a kingdom of priests. You'll become more than just an individual. You'll become a community that looks different from everyone else, that will show the world my goodness and my love and my mercy and my grace. And then we get to chapter 24, which we read. Uh, Verses 7 through 9, I'll read again. Then Moses took the book of the covenant, and he read it aloud to the people. And again, they all responded, we'll do everything the Lord's commanded, we'll obey. Then Moses took the blood from the basins, and he splattered it over the people, declaring, look, this blood confirms the covenant the Lord's made with you in giving you these instructions. Then Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel climbed up the mountain, and there they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet there seemed to be a surface of brilliant blue lapis lazuli, as clear as the sky itself. And though these nobles of Israel gazed upon God, he did not destroy them. And in fact, they ate a covenant meal, eating and drinking in his presence. So God does all of this. We talked about Exodus 19. He gives them the why. And then Exodus 20, he gives them the law, the Ten Commandments. And we skip ahead to Exodus 24. And the people say, sweet, I'll do it. Which, if you know anything about the rest of the Bible and about Israel, um, or just about humanity in general, you know that that's like hilarious. It's like, yep, got it, God. Anything else while we're here? <laughs> I'll do everything you say. As if they like, had a chance of actually doing it perfectly. And then we see Moses sprinkles some blood of a sacrifice on the people and says to confirm the covenant promises God's making with them. Then they go up and it says they see a part of God and instead of them being destroyed by his presence, he invites them into a feast, into a covenant meal. Look, y'all, if you're a, if you're a Christian today, If you've made some kind of commitment in your life to trust in the work of Jesus to save you, then unfortunately, you've probably at some point sounded as dumb as the Israelites do. You've gone, yep, God, you saved me, and I got it. Let me just do whatever you say. But the beautiful thing is that that's all you had to do to commit to this because you might have committed and you might not have done it perfectly. You might still be messing up. But then Jesus pours out his blood over us on the cross to save us, the way Moses sprinkles the blood over the Israelites. And then Jesus invites us into his presence in the form of a meal. We're not taking it today, the Lord's Supper, communion, but Jesus invites us in a meal in the same way God invited the elders of Israel into a meal. The invitation by Jesus, when you take the Lord's Supper, here at Hope or wherever, when you take the Lord's Supper, um, the invitation is the same that God offers the people through Moses. He's saying, I've rescued you already. I've already placed my love on you. Receive the blood of Jesus and now obey my commandments. Live a life devoted to me and my ways. Enter into a personal relationship with me to be my treasure. He's saying, make yourself, and it's the plural you, make yourself a holy nation, a community that's a kingdom of priests. 
In the Lord's Supper, we take a meal regularly, reminding us of how God's delivered us, what Jesus has done for us. And to be more than individuals, to be a whole group that's devoted to caring for the outsider, right? Caring for the sick, giving to the poor, sacrificing our own comfort to make others more comfortable. And look, even if you agree with all of that in your heart, even if the deepest part of you wants to commit to making like Hope Community Church that kind of place, you're still going to mess it up sometimes. You're still going to have days where you might feel so overwhelmed with your own life, you're like, I don't have capacity to love others today. And can you at least acknowledge that you want that, right? And that when you do mess up, will you return to the blood of Jesus, seek him, try again. God's patient and he's good. He simply wants us to love him and love others, and not as individuals, but as a community. So this morning, would you consider what that means uh, for you and for us here at Hope? It's in the name, Hope Community Church. What does it look like for Hope to be a place that's different? That people can walk in and feel overwhelmed by the presence of Jesus through you, his priests. What does it look like to set aside your own needs and desires and say, what if I actually lay all this down? And I look to help someone else instead. All through returning again and again to the work of Jesus. Do you want to be a part of a group that looks like that? Are you interested in anything resembling, honest, loving, built-on-God's love community? And if you are, what does it look like to jump in? I would encourage you, if you're thinking about it, to talk to someone. One staff at Hope, one of the pastors. I'm sure plugging into community groups is a great place to start. And if you're not interested in that, maybe you're a Christian and you're like, that really doesn't sound appealing to me. Maybe you're not a Christian. Um, if you're not interested in that, I do want you to genuinely like, ask God, why not? And I don't mean that in like that hope has to be your expression of that. I, I tell our students in RUF all the time, there's a lot of great campus ministries on campus that I think are loving Jesus and others well. Like, you don't have to make RUF your place. This isn't specific to hope or your context, my context of RUF. But do you want a part of any community that looks like that? And I want you to consider what it is in you that might not want that and take it to God in earnest prayer. Ask him to meet you in that. Ask him to help you understand, to work in your heart, to uh, make you like his special treasured possession, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. Because if you ask him, he can do it, no matter where you are in that process. Let me pray for us today. King Jesus, thank you for your work, for sprinkling the blood, for inviting us into a feast, a party again and again that you invite us to. And when we get so beat down by the world, we get beat down by our own personal shaming and guilt, feeling like we're not doing enough. I'm not being holy enough. What am I doing? That you tell us you've done the work. You love us already. And you simply want a relationship with us. And you simply want us to engage in that relationship with others. And to see what happens. See what that looks like. And would you be with us the rest of this morning as we continue in worship? In your name I pray, amen.